We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. We're going to look just at chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Butler, I, I checked on mine. He did chapters 3 and 4. Um, I don't know, remember why he did that, but I, feel, I felt like there was enough where I could do two. Uh, we'll find out next week if that was the right call. Uh, but today we're just going to do chapter three. So I'll begin reading uh, chapter three. I'll begin reading at verse one. The Jordan crossing. So verse one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Excuse me. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all earth, all the earth, is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. It shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. For the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. For the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Amen. Well, we come to that transition period in the people and the life of Israel, of the people of God. Of God. Uh, Moses has passed away. Uh, he gave them the book of Deuteronomy before they passed in. You see that covenant with Israel in full laid out in detail in the book of Deuteronomy. It was a covenant all about life in the land, an external covenant. If Israel did what was uh, right, life would be great in the land. If Israel did what was wrong, life would not be so good in the land. It was a covenant of works for the people in the land. And then the historical books, or what we call the former prophets, or the, the Deuteronomistic uh, Deutero, um, right? history, 
That is, it's based on the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We see how this all plays out. We see how Israel uh, reacts and how Israel uh, seeks to and does not seek to obey God's covenant. Joshua is positive. Still lots of problems in the book of Joshua. But Joshua is positive when you compare it with the book of Judges, where things uh, go really bad very quickly. And then even in the books of uh, Samuel and Kings as well. And really that Deuteronomic history is all about how Israel went into exile, how they go from Joshua all the way to Kings, where the people are vomited out of the land. It's because they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. But Joshua is positive. Joshua is all about how the people are going to enter into that land. It's all about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see this in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. God has granted the land. The people are going to enter into the land. It's all about God giving it to them. And we can divide the main headings, the main structure of Joshua by uh, that idea of land. Entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land, and retaining the land. So we're in the section on entering the land, chapters one through four. And we saw already God as he commissioned Joshua. He he promised to be with him just as he was with Moses. Be strong and of good courage. I will be with you. Joshua chapter two, we see this reconnaissance mission. Uh, They wanted to see what the land was like. And we see the unlikely conversion of Rahab the harlot. Uh, But it confirms that the people of Canaan are fearful of the people of Israel. They heard what God had done uh, to Egypt. They heard what God had done to Sion and Og. They heard what God had done with the Red Sea and the people were fearful. God will fight for them, but the people get affirmation or I guess Joshua gets affirmation by this reconnaissance mission. And so then in chapters three and four, it's all about the crossing and then the memorial of that crossing in Joshua's three and four. Now, hopefully the problem is very clear in Joshua chapter 3, and that's the Roaring Jordan. That roaring river, that giant obstacle that was between Israel and the Holy Land, that was between Israel and the Promised Land. It was a sign of an obstacle that would be a test for them, but would also show God's uh, uh, nearness to them. God would be with them. God assures them, even before they have to fight the baddies, even before they have to fight the Canaanites, God is going to do a miracle among them to show that he is with them. Now, we can draw an application for all of God's people. There's many obstacles in life that we face. It might not be a roaring river. Maybe it is actually a literal roaring river, but there's a lot of obstacles that we deal with in this fallen, present, evil age. And the thing we have to ask ourselves is, do we trust in the firm promises of God? Do we have that firm assurance of what God has said in his word, especially when we come across difficulties, when we come across trials, when we suffer in this present evil age? So in Joshua 3, The Lord is promised that he's in the midst of the people. He's going to show that by way of being with them when they cross the Jordan. And the crossing of the Jordan is going to be a token, a precursor for his nearness with them in the battles of Canaan. So it's all about God in the midst of his people and all about God being with them as they cross the Jordan. So we'll look at this crossing under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the preparation for crossing the Jordan. 
verses 1 through 8. And secondly, we'll see the miracle of crossing the Jordan, verses 9 through 17. So the preparation for crossing the Jordan, and then the miracle of crossing the Jordan. So let's first look at the preparation for crossing the Jordan in verses 1 through 8. And notice we see the preparation for the people in verses 1 through 4. And so in verse 1, we see then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they had crossed over. So this after the reconnaissance mission, uh, things look good. They're ready to go. God has promised to be with them. And now they still have to cross the Jordan, and they still have to use their swords uh, to take out the Canaanites. So they were staying at Shittim. That was in Numbers 22.1. Now they've moved from there to the banks of the Jordan River, and they are ready to cross that. Now there's a lot of repetition in Joshua 3. Hopefully you noticed that as we were reading. Maybe not. It's late. That's okay. Set out in their midst and the Ark of the Covenant. Those three ideas are repeated throughout this section. Set out. They're going to set out and cross. God is going to be in their midst. And we see he's in their midst by way of the Ark of the Covenant. That's a lesson for Israel. It's also a lesson for us. We need to see the repetition in God's word because that's usually what he's uh, trying to tell us when it's repeated. So he's going to be in their midst, but they're going to set out. And as they set out, he will be with them. And so then uh, Joshua has given the command to the, 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 the chief, uh, the, the officers, uh, of Israel in verses two through four. There is this preparation for the people. They were called to do this in chapter 110. And now we see that actual preparation in verses two through four. So verse two. So it was after three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place, and you shall go after it. The, the, the Lord is going to lead you. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go before you. He is the one who will guide you as you make your way into the promised land. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the sign of Yahweh's presence among his people. Uh, it was the place where the covenant documents were. It was the documents recovered by the mercy seat. It was where Yahweh rules, reconciles, and reveals himself to the people of Israel. And often he, he uh, throughout the, 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 the history of Israel, he reveals himself to them. He enters into covenant with them, and he reconciles with them as they approach unto him. And so this is where that typically was. The tent of meeting, which would eventually be the, the, the tabernacle, uh, uh, and then eventually the temple itself. But it's where Yahweh would be with his people. It was the presence of Yahweh, uh, the sign of Yahweh's presence with them. So he would go before them uh, with this Ark of the Covenant. The priests would carry it upon their shoulders, and the people must go after it. When they see Yahweh go, they must go with him. But notice verse 4, they must follow at a distance. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. One cubit was one and a half feet. So they were supposed to stay quite, uh, quite a ways back from the ark as it went forward. And the reason is, verse four, you do not come near to it that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before. They need Yahweh's guidance. They don't know the way. 
They need to know what they must do. And so Yahweh would be the one who goes before them and Yahweh would be the one who fights for them as well. That was God's promise for the people of Israel. I will fight for you. And that gives them a lot of encouragement and comfort when they actually engage in the fighting. And even before they enter into the land, God has shown, I will be with you. I will go ahead of you. I will lead you. You follow at a distance. So the people have been prepared. Here's what the people must do. Here's their marching orders. And then we also see uh, their preparation to, uh, for meeting God in verses 5 through 8. Or, uh, yeah, 5 through 8. Notice, and Joshua said, verse 5, to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God is do, going to do something marvelous in their midst. God is going to reveal himself in a special way, and it's going to be by way of being with them as they cross over the Jordan River. And usually this command to sanctify oneself in the Old Testament is usually done prior to Yahweh's special revelation. You see this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. He got, or Moses tells the people to consecrate themselves. And what happens in Exodus 19? We have thunder and lightning. Then Exodus 20, what's Exodus 20? When the law of God is given, when the Ten Commandments are brought forth from the mouth of God, uh, you know, the people were prepared for that. They consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart. Also in Numbers 11, uh, it's found there as well. And so the implication is the crossing of the Jordan is going to require a miracle from God. We haven't learned that reason just yet. Suspense is supposed to build, but uh, spoiler alert, it's a huge river. And so they need God's miraculous aid to help them as they cross the Jordan. So they're going to meet God in a special way as he guides them across the Jordan. And so Joshua tells them, sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves. You're going to see a wonder that comes from God most high. Gil says this was done in a ceremonial sense by washing their bodies and their clothes and abstaining from their wives, but also in a moral sense by acts of religion and devotion. My prayer and meditation and the exercise of repentance and good works. It may denote that sanctification is necessary to our passage over Jordan or through death to the heavenly Canaan. For without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But the Lord is preparing us for heaven. The Lord is preparing us and making us fit for heaven. And as the Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And frankly, that comes from God most but here, uh, Joshua calls the people to sanctify themselves, prepare yourselves. You're about to meet the Lord God most high. And we see that reason for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. There's going to be a miracle with the people crossing the Jordan. There's also going to be the nearness of God when they take the land of Canaan as well. And the language of wonders is also used in Exodus 3.10. God is going to affirm Moses' words with wonders, but also in Exodus 34 as well. So a lot of allusions back to the Exodus and what God did for the people uh, as they came up out of the land of Egypt. Certainly the dry land ought to be reminiscent of the Red Sea, which Joshua will bring up in Joshua chapter 4. 
but Yahweh has done many wonders for the people of Israel, and he's going to do another one for them to affirm them and confirm them and assure them before they enter into the land. And so uh, sanctify yourselves, verse 5, and then verse 6. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over uh, before the people. So they shall go first. The command comes up again for them to do that. It's going to be repeated again throughout this chapter. Uh, but the priest shall go first. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And then in verses 7 through, nine, uh, through 8, sorry, we see that jo God affirms to Joshua, I will be with you. Now, the Lord has already confirmed to Joshua he would be with him, Joshua 1. The Transjordan or Cisjordan tribes have already confirmed that they will be, uh, they will follow Joshua. They're not going to renege on the promise. Remember that uh, uh, that agreement, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, we like the eastern side better. Can this be our inheritance? Moses says, sure, uh, but you have to help your brethren as they take the land. And so there was maybe perhaps uh, a, a concern whether they would follow Joshua. They affirm that. And then we hear, have here before the people, God is going to confirm before the people and exalt Joshua before them that they would follow him. So it says in verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua knows it. The half-tribe, and the, the, the Cisjordan tribes know it. And even as well, the people are going to know it. God has confirmed it. And God so often repeats his promises, doesn't he? I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And again, he says, I will be with you, and I will do this to show my might, but also to show and exalt you in front in front of the people. I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And that's going to be helpful as well as they still have to fight. They're going to have a strong leader given by God, but also they need that leader to be with them and to lead them uh, on behalf of God into the land of Canaan. So it was primarily for the people to encourage them and to help them. But then also in verse 8, we see uh, the means by which God will do this. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now, again, we know the end, but if we were reading that for the first time, we would be asking ourselves, Why? <laughs> That seems like an odd command, doesn't it? Just go stand by the Jordan. Let's see what happens. That would be a little odd for someone to wonder what, you know, why, why is this happening? But sometimes the odd commands of God usually show how much we need God. Usually a lot of the times the commands God gives are counter-cultural to the world, aren't they? Even the Ten Commandments. Maybe God doesn't tell us to go stand by a river and then put your feet in and everything's going to, you know, dry up. God doesn't tell us to do that. But as God's people, we are commanded to live in a way consistent with the Word of God. We are commanded to follow God's Word, not to be saved, but because we have been saved and seeking to honor and glorify Him. That goes against the world, doesn't it? Don't commit adultery. I mean, you know, marriage is the place for the, you know, for the, the, uh, the marriage is the place for sexual relations. That's it. I mean, 
I, you know, I can't just fornicate with anybody I want. You mean it's only between a man and a woman, not two men and two women. You mean God made male. I mean, you think that the command's simple to understand and it is, but in a world that's, you know, not for that in a sinful world, well, that's going to be a hard thing to do in this world and perhaps ever more increasingly hard, especially with certain laws that have been put into place. So you think about worship. Yeah. You, you, gather on a Sunday, you gather to worship, oh, you shouldn't do that because of this, that, or the other. I mean, you know, that's going to go against the world. That's going to go against what the world says. So the commandments aren't hard, but they're going to be odd in front of the world. And we need God to be with us and to aid us and strengthen us to do what is right, come what may. Now, I know that was applicatory, but that wasn't my main application from this section. Uh, My main application, and i and I think it, I saw this in several of the commentaries, so it comes a lot from others, but I think there is some, some wisdom here. How God's people can prepare for public worship. I think that's one thing we can glean from this. I think there is prepar- two things with that, preparation for worship and preparation for heaven. Now, I want to be careful I don't sound like a legalist here. But there is a sense that we ought to prepare our hearts before we enter into the house of the Lord. That is, the Lord's day is the market day of the soul. We're coming before God most high. Now, God is with us by the Spirit each and every day. But we come in a favorable way. We enter into God's house. And he is our audience. The people in the pew are not the audience. He is our audience. And we come to worship him reverently, acceptably. But that starts perhaps possibly the night before. That is, are we staying up too late and we're so tired the next day? In fact, I know a lot of pastors that stay away, that stay away. They don't do a lot of things on a Saturday night to prepare for the Lord's day the next day. Now, again, there's no hard and fast with this, but we have to start thinking and pondering and realizing that we enter into the household of God. Perhaps the most important thing to consider is that we enter into the house of the living God. And we enter into the house of the one true God, the holy God, and we ought to do so with reverence and awe in an acceptable way. Davis says, if we are not impressed with the grandeur of the living God in public worship, is it because we have not prepared ourselves to see him as such? Could it be that we even fail to detect the Lord's marvelous working in the routine affairs of our lives simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see or even expect that. Or perhaps to put it another way, do we have faith that the God of heaven and earth will dwell with us and speak with us? What we do on the Lord's day isn't all razzmatazz or razzle-dazzle, but we trust what God has said in his word, that he shall build his church and he shall speak to his people, that we shall hear Christ that we shall hear him, that we shall meet with him in his word. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Do we believe that God will work in such a way? It shows us that theology matters. Knowing who our God is helps us in how we approach our God on the Lord's day, but also how we approach our God day by day. Because God does something marvelous every Sunday. He speaks, and we ought to appreciate that, we ought to trust that, and we ought to come with reverence and 
with awe because he speaks. So we ought to prepare our hearts for public worship. And also, public worship prepares us for heaven. That's also what the doctrine of sanctification is, right? J.C. Ryle distinguishes between justification and sanctification. Justification gives us our title to heaven. That cannot be taken away. But sanctification makes us fit for heaven. It prepares us for heaven. We are making our way to that heavenly country. And the church is like an embassy. As we are making our way, as we are on that journey, and we get to come and rest and get a glimpse and foretaste of what heaven shall be like. Sanctification prepares us for heaven. Church is what prepares us for heaven. And it's a blessing to be able to gather as the people of God for worship before our thrice holy God. We ought to do so with reverence and awe as we make our way to that celestial city. So I don't think they were out to lunch with this preparation idea. Joshua says, sanctify yourselves, prepare for tomorrow, for you shall meet the Lord, is essentially what he is saying. So that's the preparation uh, for crossing the Jordan. Let's then look secondly at the miracle of crossing the Jordan in verses 9 through 17. And so notice we see how the living God is going to protect and fight for his people, verses 9 and 10. Notice we see the authority of God's word, verse 9. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. God has made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Israel. What was the problem of the first generation? Unbelief. They did not trust in the promises of God. They freaked out when they saw the giants in the land. And that's where Caleb and uh, Joshua said, no, God said, we'll go in, let's take them. But the 10, you know, scared everybody else. The 10 feared, they were fearful of the giants rather than being fearful of God. And so Joshua says, come hear what God has said. You know, God is very gracious to give the second generation many affirmations and confirmations before they enter in. You know, he's confirming them and affirming them. And even the crossing of the Jordan is going to do that very thing. And notice the Lord, your God, the God of Israel, the God overall, the covenant Lord is your God. And he will be with you. He's going to use different names for God in these verses. So he is the Lord, your God. Trust in his words with what he has said. He is for you as the covenant people. And then he says in verse 10. Hear the words, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, living as opposed to dead idols. This was a lesson for Israel not to put their trust in gods who can't see, who can't speak, who can't touch. When they have the living God who is with them, who is uh, uh, in, in the midst of them and who fights for them. Gil says, the one who has life in and of himself and is the author of life to all his creatures and is so called in opposition to the lifeless idols of the Gentiles. And it may be to suggest to them that though Moses was dead, the Lord lived and lives forevermore. And by the following miracle of dividing the waters of Jordan, it would be a plain case that the Lord was yet among them to protect them and defend them, deliver and save them. He is the one to trust. 
He is the real God as opposed to those idols. Trust in him. He will be with you as he uh, uh, walks before you and uh, causes the Jordan to be dry. And the purpose of all this is to confirm them concerning the warfare they have to engage in. Verse 10. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and the Jebusites. The people are going to be active and throwing, you know, using swords and arrows and whatnot and strategy. But God is the one who will go before them. God is the one who will fight for them. And even though there are giants in the land, they don't need to fear for God is with them. God will work amongst them. God will be with them and God will do marvelous signs with them. He will fight for them. He will drive them out. And this will be the sign. Notice in verses 11 through 17. I guess 11 through 13, then the fulfillment in verses 14 through 17. But the sign that God will fight for them is the crossing of the Jordan, verses 11 and 13. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing before you into the Jordan. We've already seen that God would go before them. But the sign that the God is going to be with them when they enter into the Holy Land is his crossing before them uh, across the Jordan. And then verse 12. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. This is anticipating the memorial stones in chapter 4. The memorial stones play an important role for Israel in the future, but we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. But each man, one from each tribe, must secure these stones, which we'll see, we see in Joshua 2, uh, 4, verses 2 through 4. And so they must remember this, but also notice the miracle promise, verse 13. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. That is the second time that is repeated. The God overall is the God of Israel. That's important for the people of God. The God overall is the God for his church. God is moving all things for his glory, but for the good of his church. All of world history is moving for the good of his church. That ought to give us comfort when we see decline. We ought to remember that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Remember that? The gates of Hades is on the fence. The church is at the gates of Hades. And so, yes, we hear persecutions. Yes, we must pray for our brethren around the world. But Christ's church is advancing. And thankfully, God's ways are better than our ways. We ought not to be discouraged, but ought to put our faith and trust in our God and our Christ, who is the head of his church, who is the head of all principality and power, and shall bring in his kingdom. And so the Lord overall is the Lord for his people. What's a river? What's a Jordan? God is Lord overall. That is what he is saying to them. I am the Lord overall, and those waters shall subside. Those waters shall rest. Uh, 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 the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. God has promised them safe passage to the promised land. This has been repeated in eight 
and 13. It will also be in 15 as well when it actually happens. It's suspense building. It's supposed to be some tension. What's going to happen? What's going to occur? But we already know the end, so I cut the tension. Sorry about that. Uh, but that's how the Bible, there's a lot of tension and suspense in the Bible. It's a, it's a wonderful book to read, right? Not just because of what God says, because it's the best book uh, that was ever written. So it's build suspense. That's what the, the writer, perhaps Joshua, we don't know, is, is building that suspense for us there. But God has given this promise. And then in verses 14 through 17, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Notice verse four, uh, 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of the harvest. Finally, we see why this is a big deal. The reason for all the preparation and promise is because of the size of the river at this time of year. It was perhaps a mile wide at this point. It was raging and roaring during harvest time or springtime. Perhaps there were bush, uh, lots of jungle and bush they had to get through. Not to mention that it perhaps flooded is perhaps the, some of the, the language that we see there, the overflowing of all its banks. So this was no slouch of a river to cross. It's not someone who's going for a nature walk. There's a little creek where you're just going to cross over. That's not what this was. This was a major problem, a major obstacle for the people to cross over into the holy and promised land. So the extent of the river that was cut off, we see in verse 16, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, that's the sea, uh, the, the Dead Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. God had provided a miraculous way, a miraculous crossing akin to the Red Sea. God has been with them, God has guided them, and God is guiding them into the land by way of this miracle. And so the people cross safely, verse 17. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. God gave them a promise. God said, I will be with them. I will show you this wonder that I will do. And God shows his protection and his might and his power and his affirmation that he will be with the people. Davis says, if Yahweh can tame a raging river, he can also repel attacking Amorites. If he can stop up the Jordan, he can put down the Girgashite. If he can get you into the land, he can surely give you the land. So this was for the people it was to show that God would be with them and to remind them of the God they can put their trust in. And that's something we can take away, how God's people can trust in the living God. I think sometimes God's people can doubt. God's true Christians, God's true children can struggle with assurances, especially in the problems of life that come our way. 
especially in the problems of our remaining corruption, problems of sin that we cannot shake. We begin to doubt the promises of God. Now, remember, this crossing was for the people of Israel to remember. Yes, there was an element that it was to strike some more fear into the Canaanites. But in 424, at the end of 424, Joshua says uh, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's a reminder for them and a reminder for us of who we can put our faith in in this present evil age. As we struggle, as we have difficulties, as we, through many tribulations, must enter the kingdom of God. You know, my view on the end times, I believe we're living in the great tribulation. I believe the thousand years is just between the, the time of Christ's first and second coming. You can disagree with me, but that's my view. A thousand years, I believe, is figurative. I believe we're living in the great tri tribulation because this present evil age is full of tribulation. I mean, John says in Revelation, I am your fellow companion in the tribulation. This world, this present age is marked by that very thing. Trial, struggle, hardship, difficulty, sin, sorrow, suffering. Yes, God gives us strength and there's good things for sure, but it's marred by sin and suffering. And so there are going to be problems that God's people deal with that we must be reminded of where our help comes from. Like Psalm 121 says, where does our help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. David says, Yahweh delights to show his might in the face of our utter helplessness, apparently so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. It is God who saves. It is God who regenerates. It is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. And the work that he's begun in us, he shall complete and bring to its fruition on that day when he comes again. So God's people can trust in his nearness as the church as a whole, we can, against the gates of Hades. Isn't that Christ's promise at the end of Matthew 28? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is to the end of the present evil age before I come back. Christ shall be with us. But Revelation 1 who is it who walks in the midst of the lampstands? Is it not Christ who walks in the midst of his people? And again, there's a lot of ink spilled on what revelation means and who it's about and that sort of thing. But one thing it's clear, it's written for the church. And it's written for the church in times of great trial, when perhaps Nero was emperor and they have to deal with that guy. And all the trials and tr uh, tr uh, struggles and persecutions that he brought. Who is the one who reigns? Who is the one who is king? Who is the one who is Lord? And who is the one who is in the midst of his church? It is Christ. He is near to us. He is with us. And he is our true tabernacle. And what's interesting is in Acts 7, 45, when Stephen is on trial and is giving his defense, he talks about the tabernacle of the Lord and how the tabernacle, uh, he refers to this uh, situation in 
Joshua 3, how they carried it across the Jordan, how God went with them, how God was near to them. But the problem at that time was the Pharisees, Israel, made the temple an idol. And here comes Stephen saying, the one who is the true temple has come and you have rejected him. Christ is the true temple and we have access and communion with God because of him and he indwells us because he is our tabernacle because of the spirit poured out amongst his people. So God is near to the church but God is also near to each and every one of his people. And he helps us as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Isn't that the promise we saw in Hebrews 13 when someone covets? <laughs> what does the writer say? God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised to be with you as you're concerned about life and the direction of life and concerned about things you do or do not have. God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. If enemies abound, there is a living God. What's interesting is I didn't know this. I didn't double check the work, but several of the commentators said the, the idea of the living God isn't used that much in the Old Testament. It's used in, in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Will they continually say to me, where is your God? If you cry, if you have trials, there's the living God you can call upon in your trials. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. It's also used in Psalm 84 as the, the writer longs for the house of God, longs to be in the presence of God. But it's also used in Hosea chapter 1, referring to the restoration, referring to redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Those who are not my people shall be my people. And you all know the story of Hosea as he marries one who would become a harlot. Uh, the reason I say that is because the first son is born to him, Jezreel, but the latter children are not. It just says in verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. Doesn't say to him. And then she conceived and bore a son. Doesn't say to him. Only the first one says to him. And they all have interesting names uh, to talk about how Israel was, you know, essentially being the harlot. But the promise uh, of restoration, where God reverses that. He says in verse 10, if the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. God is with his people. God redeems his people. And we can call upon the living God in our trials and in our tribulations. And it's also uh, important to be encouraged that God has prepared a place for us. And he's preparing us to receive that place. Now that way is filled with many obstacles. That way is filled with seven deaths that lay in between. That way is filled with the valley of the shadow of death. But remember, the Lord of the earth, the one who parted the sea, the one who parted the Jordan, will preserve you 
and keep you until the end. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your covenant promises, especially the promises of the new covenant, uh, of what awaits us, of your nearness to us as we make our way, uh, of the the presence of Christ, of our union with Christ, of all the benefits that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. Thank you for who we are in him. Thank you for what you've done because of him. Uh, uh, Thank you for all the benefits that you've given to us. And we ask that as we come and worship, and as worship is that preparation for the new heavens and new earth, uh, we pray that we would approach you with reverence and with awe. Please forgive us for not having a healthy, holy fear as we should. Please forgive us for treating the Lord's day like any other day. Please help us to have a renewed respect and appreciation for worship, that you are our audience, that we come before you and enter into your house. And so may we do so with reverence and with trembling, but may we do so with joy because we have been redeemed and saved in the Savior, and we can boldly come before you because of what he has done for us. So prepare our hearts for heaven. Be with us as you sanctify us. Thank you that you prepare us for that, uh, that, that time. Thank you for glimpses and foretastes of that time. And we pray that we would die unto sin and grow into the image of Christ day by day. We also pray that you'd help us to put our trust in you day by day. Whatever trial awaits, whatever adversity comes, help us to understand both prosperity and adversity comes from your hand. And may we um, not grumble or complain. May we know that we can put our trust in you, the potentate of time. And so we pray that you would help your church. May we not be discouraged with the things that we see, but recognize that Christ is building his church. Uh, may we not be discouraged with the life you've given to us, but grow content in the blessings and the benefits that you've given to us. And if we have good desires, may you hear those desires and requests that we bring before you. And we also pray that you continue to prepare us and keep us till the end. Thank you for your preservation. Thank you for your nearness. And we pray that you never leave us nor forsake us. So be with us now as we go out into the world. Give us strength for the day, uh, for the night, and strength for tomorrow. Be with us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.